Good morning. It's uh, it's really good to be here. Actually, we say that every week, and it seems doubly so uh, this week when, when much of it, uh, we weren't sure if we'd be gathering together. And uh, here, the Lord's provided just a, a magnificent, beautiful a morning. Uh, but we also recognize that some of you aren't able to, to join us in person, but we're glad you're here, whether uh, you're joining us because you're not able to be here because of uh, health issues, or we know some of some folks are still under evacuation orders, or actually there's road closures that make it impossible for you to get here. Uh, we're glad you're here, glad you're a part of this morning uh, with us. Uh, we're currently in a, a teaching series on the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, and this morning I want to pick up uh, from where we left off last week. Last, uh, last week, Mike uh, took us to uh, Revelation 4, and we just spent some time thinking about the glory of the throne room of God. Uh, that magnificent picture that, is, that John uh, paints for us. And in chapter 5, uh, which we're going to look at this morning, John's uh, vision of the heavenly throne room continues. And uh, you could argue, actually, that Revelation 4 and 5 are the hinge uh, chapters upon which the whole book of Revelation swings. The, these two chapters that present the grandeur, the splendor, and the rule of God in very lurid, graphic, uh, dramatic imagery to try and help us to see reality for what it is. Uh, but that means using images that are uh, peculiar to us. It doesn't read like a, a normal bit of text that we, are, that we would normally read, and so we don't find it uh, particularly easy to understand. And so we're going to this morning try to go verse, uh, a verse at a time and try to understand what's going on here in this scene that will be before us as we read it. But the images that are used are not just peculiar to us, they're very uh, powerful as well, because what they do is they remind us in their very uh, strangeness uh, that there is a world of grandeur and drama and eternity that is bigger than and more weighty than and more inexplicable than the ordinary world that we live in surrounded by uh, commutes to work and weather and Costco and the Kardashians. You know, it's, it's to lift our souls a bit, if you like. It makes you think that actually there is something bigger than the masked singer. There's something more meaningful and eternal and life-giving than just the things that we fill our everyday life with, things like football or baseball or whatever it is. And so we're intended to lift our eyes to the grandeur of that. And even the strangeness of this writing kind of helps convey that. And so if you're suffering or struggling today, if your lot in life at the moment is that you're going through a really hard time, you're just being, it just feels like you're being battered by life, whether, whether maybe for a few weeks or maybe for some for, for, for a few years, in some cases, maybe for decades. Listen, these chapters are written for you. They're addressing suffering Christians. And, and, and they're an attempt to say that the, the one thing that will lift you in and around your circumstances is not people saying, oh, it'll get better. It might not get better straight away. It, it, in fact, it might never get better, at least not until Jesus returns. But these chapters are saying, for now, lift your soul, lift your eyes to see the throne room of God. 
see the glory and splendor and victory and rule of God. And that's what this book offers to all Christians in general and to suffering Christians in particular. And I, and, and I trust it'll speak to us as well as we read it this morning. So let's read from Revelation chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he, the lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. It's a magnificent and strange vision of the heavenly worship of Jesus and the father. And we need to go through it a verse at a time and, and break it down to try and understand what's going on here and hopefully uh, make some sense of it. Then I saw the very first verse, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And we have to start by remembering that, that we've got to the next bit of a vision that began in the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, it was a vision of the throne with God the Father seated on it. And all of the things surrounding the, the throne. And we talked about rainbows and thunder and flashing lightning and all of the rest. And, and then we saw around the throne were these groups of angelic beings. There were these four living creatures that have forms that represent a lion and an ox and an eagle and a man. And then outside of that, there are these elders who are these sort of angelic represent, representatives of the people of God. And so there's this massive scene of these layers of angelic beings standing around the throne, worshiping the one seated on it. 
And the person on the throne, who is God the Father, the person on the throne has in his right hand a scroll. John says, I didn't notice that when I first looked. I described this massive throne and all of these visions and creatures. But then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now scrolls weren't normally written on both sides for technical reasons, but this one is. It's very detailed. And it's sealed with seven seals. So we've got to understand what's on the scroll and why is it sealed with seven seals. And as you read through the, the rest of the book of Revelation, it becomes clear that this scroll has got written on it all of God's purposes for the world, for judgment and for blessing. So all of the bad news and all of the good news of what will happen to the earth and all of God's purposes to judge evil and to get rid of injustice and to destroy the destroyers of the earth and to fight and contend against Satan and all of his forces, all of that, all of his purposes for judgment and all of his purposes for blessing, to reward the faithful, to make all things new, to recreate the entire universe and to bless all nations. All of those things are contained on the scroll. So it's a big scroll, and it's written on both sides, and it's got all of God's purposes for judgment and blessing on it. But at the moment, it's rolled up and sealed with seven seals. And as you probably know, a seal was a sort of stamp used in the ancient world to say, this message is from me to you, and if anyone else opens it, then you'll know that that letter's been compromised. It's a way of saying, you are the only one who is entitled to open this letter. That's what a, a scroll sealed with a, a seal is to do. So to seal with seven seals is to say, utterly and comprehensively, this has been sealed so that no one can open it apart from this one person. And the point is, the angel then asks, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seal? Who out there is ready to come and take from God the Father his plan to judge and bless the world and to ensure that all wrongs get righted and all justice is done. Who, who can come and say, I am worthy to open the scroll of God's purposes and I'm able to inaugurate God's blessings and judgment for the world? Who is able to do that? And then it says, verse 3, and no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Nobody. Who is worthy? And the answer is deafening silence. No one is worthy. And I began to weep loudly, John says, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, at first, it might seem as though John's reaction here is a, a bit odd, maybe a bit over the top. But actually, if you think about it, when you understand what is on the scroll, uh, John's tears become understandable. Because what's on the scroll here is God's list of judgments and blessings for the universe. And John's point is, if that process never happens, if the scroll cannot be unveiled and the things that God is going to do to judge 
evil in the world and reward the faithful and to bless the world, if these things never come about, then the universe is pointless and that's very much worth crying about. It's as if John is saying, listen, I'm aware that God's committed himself to right wrongs and to right injustices so that the bad things that have happened since the foundation of the world get righted and they get undone. Justice comes and overtakes injustice. I, I, I have lived with that kind of vision and purpose in my life, John is saying. And if you're telling me that, that God wanted to make all things right and all things new and bless everybody and judge evil, but nobody is, is worthy to begin the process and open the scroll, then that is calamitous. And the universe is pointless. Suffering is redemptionless. And I can't have that. And so he weeps. And you know what? He's right to do that. He's right to cry. He's right to say, God, if you are not going to make all things right as you promised you would, if, if, if God's purposes for the world and the judgments and the blessings and the renewal of all things, if that is not going to be done, if that never comes about and just injustice remains forever, suffering has no eternal meaning. The perseverance of the suffering church throughout the history to this point has no value at all. It's empty. It's meaningless. The whole universe makes no sense. Auschwitz has the last word. Redemption doesn't come. All those who've suffered abuse and grief and trauma never have those, right, those wrongs righted. It, 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 it's just the end. And then we all go into the ground and we die. And for the rest of time, there is no redemption. That's tragic if that's true. And John weeps about it. And we need to say this really because in our world, most people don't believe that the world is heading towards redemption. Christians do, but most people don't. And actually, we should be crying about it if we don't believe that that's the case. But John faces the facts and he says, you know what, if God is not the kind of God who's going to going to right wrongs and bless the world and correct injustice and destroy evil, then there's something pitiful about this planet and awful. Because the suffering he's seen in the first century and no doubt that we've seen in the 20th and 21st centuries is so graphic and so awful that if it is not undone, then this world is hopeless and it's well worth crying about. The Christians talk about a future of redemption. We believe in a gospel of God making all things new and righting wrongs. Most people don't. Actually, most religious people don't. Most religions don't think in terms of redemption. If you talk, say, to a Muslim or a Hindu, they, they don't think of the world being renewed by its creator so that all wrong is abolished and the physical world is made new and life swallows up death. They don't talk like that. In fact, at most they would say, you maybe get to a stage where you spiritually are able to leave this earth and go and spend time with, with a God who's up there. And the earth continues to go to hell, literally. That's the most you would, you would promise if you were a Muslim or perhaps a Hindu. 
You see, the, the religious systems don't work that way. They don't believe in redemption. They don't believe in a God who's going to set free the earth. And as a result, they should be weeping about it. And people who don't believe in God at all, uh, of course, don't believe in redemption either, unless it rests in the hands of humans. And, you know, in a hundred or 200 years or so ago, people thought human beings um, would be the hope for the redemption of the world. Some people are beginning to think, Maybe now that we've reached the golden age of scientific understanding, we'll be able to right the wrongs uh, on earth. Don't worry, God. I mean, if, even if, if you're even there, you stay up there, we'll sort it out. And people thought, actually, we're the answer. And then one thing after another, First World War, Second World War, the rise of communism, chaos, everything else like that. And eventually people came to the conclusion, maybe we are not the redemption of the world. And maybe there is no redemption. And so maybe the best thing we do right now is we just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We might as well just bury our heads in the sand and numb the pain and just try and avoid the awful universe which, in, in which savage evil happens and nobody ever fixes it and it's never redeemed. And, and it's a way of coping with, 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 with a pain and suffering-filled world. I'll just make sure I'm comfortable, make sure my family are comfortable. There's no redemption, there's no hope. But listen, I don't want to cry about it because it'll be too sad. And John here, he can see the bleakness of life without the redemption of God. And knowing the amount of suffering there is in the world and, and the amount of suffering that he himself and his friends and his colleagues have experienced, he weeps loudly because he says, if nobody is able to open the scroll, then no wrongs are righted and the universe is pitiful. And he's right. Verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. Don't cry, John. Don't cry. I know something you don't know. Don't cry, John. The lion has won. And he is going to be able to unleash all of God's purposes for judgment and blessing. Don't cry. There is redemption, the redemption of the world. You, you don't have to wail and weep about it because the universe does make sense because the lion has conquered. And he describes this picture, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. And there's a lot in those two phrases, which I'm afraid I'm going to have to go into theological overdrive for just a moment, just to explain what they are, because otherwise we'll just miss the picture. Otherwise we'll just think, root of David, don't really know what that, what, what, what that is, sounds like part of a tree. Lion, well, I'm sure it's probably some sort of reference to Aslan, that he's a powerful uh, person, and, and basically we'll miss anything more than that. And so we just need to, to pause for a moment. Lion of the tribe of Judah, root of David. Because what John's doing here is he's taking two separate Old Testament images about the Messiah and he's putting these two different images together and saying they're both true of Jesus. And the first one comes from Genesis 49, which is a passage where if you remember way back in the garden, 
Adam and Eve and the snake. And, and, and the snake attacks Adam and Eve and God comes to judge the snake. And in the course of judging the snake, uh, gives a, a promise of redemption for the world. He says, I'm going to put enmity, warfare, between your seed, he says to the serpent, your offspring and the woman's offspring. They're going to, your, your children are going to be at war, Satan, with the, 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 women, the woman's children. And they're always going to be fighting, fighting each other. And one of your offspring is going to bite one of her offspring on the heel. You're going to cause pain and affliction to a human being. But that human being, in receiving that pain and affliction, is going to crush your head and destroy you forever. That's the promise from the very beginning of the Christian story. And in Genesis 49, a number of chapters on, the same writer says, I want you to see that promise is now resting on a particular tribe in Israel. Okay, so the, the promise goes to humanity in general, but as the book of Genesis goes on, it gets zeroed in on a particular individual. And Jacob, who is the father of Israel, Jacob is prophesying over his sons. He has 12 sons, and they're all in the line, and he prophesies over Reuben and Simeon and Levi. And then he comes to his fourth son, Judah, and he, and he lays hands on him, and he says the following, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've, go, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What on earth does that mean? What it means is Jacob is saying that the promise that was given to Eve and her children and then went to my grandfather Abraham, and then my father Isaac, and, and now is given to me. I'm giving to you, Judah. And I'm telling you that somebody from your tribe, one of your great-great-great-great-grandsons, is going to be the one through whom the snake is crushed, and Satan and sin are done with. That's what he's saying. He's giving that promise to Judah. And so we're looking... In the whole of the scriptural story, one of the, the many things we're trying to see, if you know your Bibles and you're reading these texts, is, so who is this lion of the tribe of Judah? Who is this lion-like figure who's going to roar and destroy the snake and in doing so have the whole world come and worship before him? Who is this? We're looking for the lion of the tribe of Judah. And of course, John here is saying, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the elder then also says, the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is also the root of David, which most of us just skip right over and say, okay, fine, we know he's something to do with David. That's, that's all we need. But again, this is a, another deliberate reference to another biblical text in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And what John, again, is doing here is he's meshing together two completely different passages to say both of these are fulfilled in the same person. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah who's going to destroy the snake, sin, death, and Satan. He's going to, he's going to take Satan and crush him. But he's also the root of David. And that's a reference to a passage in Isaiah chapter 11 
where Isaiah, speaking of the Messiah, says this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's dad. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And then he describes what it will look like when this Messiah from David's line comes and rules. He says, the wolf shall, lie, shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the... The bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Again, you're going, what on earth does all of that mean? What's going on here is Isaiah is saying, a day is coming when the root of Jesse will conquer. And when he does, what you're going to see is a world that is so transformed and re redeemed by peace everywhere that even animals that normally eat each other are going to dwell in harmony. And the children are going to play with poisonous, uh, venomous snakes and they won't be get, be, get bitten or be harmed. What's going on is it's picture language for the extent of the redemption of the world that is so graphic and dramatic that Every single animal that is currently at enmity will be reconciled to one another. Peace will be so global that even the animals won't be killing one another. Now, I think it's picture language. It may or, not, may or may not mean it literally. I'm not sure. But, but, but what it does mean is redemption has now come to the universe. So everything that was broken is now fixed. Everywhere where there was enmity and strife and hostility is now harmony, peace, and friendship and wholeness. And so when John picks these two phrases up, and, and I know this is tough, but just try and get your head around it with me. But what he's say, saying is the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of, 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 of David, he's picking up two completely different bits of the Old Testament and saying that they're both fulfilled in Jesus. He's saying the redemption of human beings from sin and Satan and the redemption of the entire world from death and strife are both going to happen in the same person. The lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David are, the, are one in the same and he has conquered. And that's the wonder of the Christian message. Even before we've come to the, the, the next bit. The wonder of the Christian message is unlike almost anybody else in the world, unlike everybody else in the world, Christians are saying, look, evil is not here to stay. Redemption does come. Hope is real. We validate it because we believe in a lion who destroys a snake and who gets rid of suffering so that even wolves and lambs and fattened calves are able to hang out together. We believe in redemption for the earth. We don't believe in evacuation. We're not talking about getting out of this. We're talking about all things being made new by Almighty God. And, and because that message is at the center of who Christians are and always have been, we're people who speak and believe in redemption, hope, rescue for the world, not abandonment of it or escape from it. And John is now 
on the edge of his seat thinking, wow, who is this going to be? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And he turns around and I'm sure... I'm sure he's expecting to see a fearsome conquering warrior or, or an untamable roaring lion. And he looks around and it says this, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That's the shocking thing about the Christian message, right? One of the, the glorious things is that there is redemption for the earth, and, and uh, which nobody, <laughs> nobody else is even claiming is true. I mean, Christians are the only people who even believe in, re, in, in the redemption of the world. Resurrection doesn't form a part of anybody else's worldview, as far as I'm aware. I mean, that's amazing in itself, but the shocking thing is that it comes through a lamb as though slaughtered. So John looks around, and instead of seeing a great dramatic conquering figure, instead he's confronted with a slaughtered lamb. And John's not expecting that. John turns and sees a lamb as though slaughtered, because you see, the Christian gospel is not just a message of victory or even redemption. The Christian gospel is a message of victory through suffering. And what this passage tells us that ultimately that, that victory comes through a lion who in fact comes as a slaughtered lamb. What we do not have, you see, is simply a showdown between a lion and the snake. What we have is a lion becoming like a lamb in order to be slaughtered and to take upon himself all the suffering and pain and oppression and injustice of the world and in taking it upon himself, conquering it and rising again. So we have victory, but we have victory through suffering. And that's radically different from what anyone else believes. And it's at the center of the wonder of the Christian gospel. God in Jesus conquers sin and death, but he conquers it by taking it upon himself and not just by sitting up in heaven and ruling it off the call. You know, sometimes people will struggle with the whole question of, I mean, why did Jesus even have to die? You know, why, why the atonement? Why do we have to have a dead Jesus? Why couldn't God in heaven just say, okay, we're done with sin. I'll cancel the whole thing. I, 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 I just don't understand why Jesus had to die. And what such individuals are struggling with is the idea that we, that we can't just have victory. We have to have victory through suffering. You see, that's at the essence of Christianity, the, the, the idea that God in Jesus defeats sin and death by taking sin and death upon himself like a lamb as though slaughtered and then having defeated it rises again like a, a risen roaring lion. And the reason why the lion and the lamb come together is because Jesus is victorious over death but he's victorious over death as one who has experienced it and come out the other side, rather than someone who just says, actually, let's just write it off. And I suspect that if it wasn't, some of us would feel like saying to God, you know what, God? It's all right for you. 
It's all right for you to just let it go. Okay, I'll cancel it, fine. You're not involved in the suffering of the world. God, if you could only know what it was like to have been at the gate of Auschwitz and see the horrors that had happened. If, if you had only been there in Kingali when, when, when people were massacring one another in 1994. If only you'd been there in, at 9-11. If only you had seen these things, you would know. But actually, God, you're distant and you're up there just going, okay, fine, we'll get rid of it. It costs you nothing, God. But in Jesus, you cannot do that. You can't say that to God. Because God in Jesus takes all of the oppression and injustice and suffering and awfulness of this world. God takes on the worst of the, of the things that this universe can throw at him. He takes them all on himself and in dying for them, conquers them. And that's why the lion and the lamb is so key, so central to Christianity. Because without that, you're able to say, God, you're unengaged. You don't, you don't know what it's like. Yeah, forgive sins. Listen, it costs you nothing. And God says, it costs me everything to come and take away your selfish flesh and in taking it on it, defeating it by dying for it. I know exactly what it's like to live in your shoes. I've suffered every way that you have suffered and more. And people find it very difficult to understand that, but it's at the, the center of who we are and what we believe as Christians. The lion who is also a lamb. And for the rest of the book of Revelation, Jesus is never called a lion again. This is the only place in the whole Bible that Jesus is explicitly called a lion. And 25 times he's called a lamb. Because for John, the jarring thing about him is not primarily that he's a big, fearsome warrior. We know that about Jesus, John would say. It's obvious he's a big, fearsome warrior. The thing that really gets me, he says, is that he's a lamb as well. He's a conquering lamb. Verse 7, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So, the image is now quite peculiar if it wasn't already, but we've got this slain lamb who's now kind of moving towards the throne and taking the scroll from the right hand of him who sit, is seated on the throne. And when he's taken the scroll, the four living creatures who, who we forgot, maybe we for, forgot they were still there, but they're watching this scene and the 24 elders who were also there fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp. All of these creatures now are taking up instruments of joy and celebrating together. There's a sense of joy in heaven that is just overwhelming. Yes, this is the kind of redemption that we had hoped for. A gospel that makes sense of suffering in this earth. Each one held a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 9, and they sang a new song. Up until this point in history, nobody has had ever, as far as I'm aware, nobody had ever sung a song of praise to Jesus. I don't think in the rest of the New Testament there's a song of praise addressed to Jesus until this point. I mean, now everyone does. I mean, now there are billions of people today singing songs of praise to Jesus. But this is a new song at this point. Prior to this, they may have sung songs to God in and through Jesus. But at this point, John says, do you know what? The thing that this lamb has done is so glorious and all-encompassing that we now don't just sing to the one that is on the throne. We sing, to the, we sing to the one who is on the throne and to the lamb because you're both worthy, as worthy as each other. 
And it's a song, and, and, and now we're singing, we're, we're, we're all singing it, and it goes like this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, which is the closest you have in the Greek language to saying gazillions, right? The point is just this massive untold number saying it with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Throne, lamb, living creatures, elders, myriads of angels, and outside them is yet another group of worshipers, 13 and 14, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and to the Lamb, God the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The whole of creation in this vision conclude by being united in a song of worship and wonder to the, the God who's seated on the throne and to the Lamb. They're, they're not just saying, God the Father, you are worthy. They're saying, God the Son, Jesus the Lamb, you are worthy as well. And you're worthy because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased people from every tribe and nation. And because of who you are and what you have done, we now bow down and worship in absolute abandonment and joy. And every single creature in the heavens and the earth and everything in the sea, the whole of creation goes, you are so good. You are a glorious, worthy lamb, and we happily bow down to worship you. Every single creature in the universe is joined in singing in this one song, in this vision that we have in chapter 5. Worthy is the one who is seated on the throne, and worthy is the lamb. And so we're going to join them. And what we're going to do as we conclude is just break bread together. Because as we do that, what we're effectively doing is enacting the reality that all these creatures are singing about. Uh, this is a way of expressing worship for the sacrifice of Jesus to conquer sin and death and defeat every enemy that, that human beings and God himself have, uh, have arrayed against them. He's, he, he, he conquers by suffering out the cross and then rising again and leaving an empty tomb uh, behind him. And that victory we celebrate as Christians by breaking bread together, among other things. And so this morning as we come to this table, we're going to take the, the bread and cup as a way of saying, Jesus, I want to experience again this wondrous, worthy sacrifice of the Lamb as though slaughtered that I have the privilege of, of knowing. And I want to remember him. And I want to enjoy him and commune with him through physical symbols which help me draw, in, draw me into the life of God in that way. And so we're going to come to the table now. But before we do, let's, let's just pause and, and, and in a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you. We, we want to join in that song that is sung around your throne. We say with them, worthy is the Lamb to receive honor and glory and wisdom and might. We say, worthy are you, O Lord and God, 
You are very great. Oh, we love the gospel. We love the lamb. We love the one who sits on the throne. And we thank you for what you've done for us. And we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.